Star Walker Studios presents Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. Hello, fellow gamer. Welcome to episode 144 of Game Master's Journey, your multidimensional RPG podcast. I'm Lex Starwalker. On this show, we discuss the craft and art of game mastering. Not only do I pass along any knowledge I've gained over 25 plus years of running RPGs, I also share wisdom from guest GMs and listener GMs like you. Today, I continue my series on the roles of the GM. In this episode, we'll discuss the GM as a teacher. As GMs, we often find ourselves teaching players a new game or even teaching players who've never played an RPG before. I'll give you strategies to set yourself up for success and to ensure your players come back for more. I'll also give some tips specific to teaching 5th edition D&D to new players. And finally, I'll give some tips for new GMs preparing to run D&D for the first time. So I think that will keep us busy today for episode 144. So great that you're back. So great to be back myself. And I got to tell you, I was worried (laughs) about getting an episode out this week because I have been down with the flu. This is like the 10th day I've been sick with this thing. Finally have my voice to the, the point where I think I can record the show and not sound absolutely terrible. But if I sound a little different, that's why um, I'm, I'm still getting over this thing. It's been nasty. So here at the top of the show, before we get into discussing the GM as a teacher, I have a couple other topics I want to hit really quickly here. First of all, I have a really exciting announcement to make. Those of you that are on the Game Master's Journey community already know about this, but for those of you that that aren't on the community or don't follow me on Twitter or Facebook, I wanted to let you know that I have been working very hard on a self-published adventure for D&D. The adventure is called The Trickster's Labyrinth. And it's pretty much finished at, at this point. We, we've done all the writing and the editing and, and got it all polished up and have started the layout. But as, as is often the case with projects like these, this thing is, is just grown in scope. When I first started, I was thinking that this would be like a one-shot adventure, maybe one or two sessions tops of gameplay was what I was shooting for. And I started designing the adventure and got pretty far with it and suddenly had this eureka moment where I thought of a, a cool new element to bring in to kind of make it more than just your everyday run-of-the-mill D&D adventure and got really excited about that, decided to do it. But I felt to really realize this, this new concept and, and really do it justice, I, I was going to have to take a little bit more time than one or two sessions worth of gaming. So the thing has ended up being something that I think will take most groups four to five sessions to get through. We're talking, you know, your average four hour session. Uh, took me either four or five sessions to get through it myself. And that was before um, some pretty substantial revisions and additions. So it may actually take longer than that. I'm not sure. But I had set a, a deadline for myself because I've been working on adventures to publish for almost exactly a year now. And not just this adventure, I, I have a whole other series of adventures I've been working on. But I, I kept adding more to the pile and finally decided, well, my wife and I decided that if I was ever going to have something actually publishable, 
that I needed to set myself a hard deadline because I work really good under pressure and without some kind of deadline of, you know, this is when it has to be done. Uh, I felt like it would just keep growing in scope and I would never actually finish it. And I I would just keep revising it and perfecting it because I I am a bit of a perfectionist. So we decided I was going to give myself until the end of January to finish this. And I said, you know, when January's over, I'm I'm done. It's done. I'm going to publish it, even if I don't think it's, quote, done. And I missed the deadline by about half a week. And I was just talking about the writing and the editing. I wasn't really talking about the layout because my wife, Nikki, is doing the layout. I was just basically thinking, I'm going to have my part of it done by the end of January. January, uh, About halfway through the first week of February, I was done. I, all the editing was done. It was ready to go, ready to start laying out. And Nikki started working on it. And I realized, you know, I still have ideas. I still have more I'd like to do with it. And I don't want to say too much. I don't want to give the adventure away to anybody that might run it or play it. But the way that this kind of came out is I think that player characters who finish this adventure will have a very strong motivation to return to it later at some point. Some point, not right away, later on in their careers when they're higher level, they're more powerful. I think a lot of players will want to return and and are going to have some unfinished business with this adventure. And I thought it would be cool to actually be able to, to flesh that out. But I'd already hit my deadline and the thing's basically done now, you know, and, and I thought, well, maybe someday I can do part two, you know, or do the return to the trickster's labyrinth kind of thing. Well, long story short, Nikki and I were talking and we decided, you know what, we're going to do a Kickstarter for this. I think a Kickstarter is a great way to launch something like this. And I think that it will be a pretty low risk Kickstarter for backers because the writing and the designing and the editing is already done. It's already starting to get laid out. So it will be something that won't take a lot of time to get out to backers once the Kickstarter is over. And if the Kickstarter does really well and we get into stretch goals, you know, then maybe I can do the sequel as actually part of the adventure and not have to do it as a separate thing. And I also have other ideas of things I'd like to add into the adventure, ways that I could make it even cooler, but, you know, would take more time. And I've already sunk a lot of time into this. And and I have to say, if I knew (laughs) going into this how much more time it would take to develop an adventure that I want to sell to everybody, as opposed to just an adventure to run for my own group, I probably wouldn't have done it. (laughs) I had no concept of how much time this would take, but I've put so much time into it and I'm really proud of it. And I think people are really going to like it. And I'm really excited to get it out there and and see what people think of it. So we are kind of, we've put the layout on hold for now and we're developing the actual Kickstarter and um, unfortunately, I came down with this flu and, and now Nikki's got it. So we've been kind of <laughs> uh, down and out for a bit and, and it's kind of thrown a wrench in things. But we are hoping to get the Kickstarter all figured out and get it designed. And this is going to be our first Kickstarter. So, you know, there's a lot to figure out. But we're hoping to get this thing up and running uh, very soon, hopefully within a few weeks so uh, definitely stay tuned. I'll, I'll keep you up to date on the show. 
And probably the best way to, to be really up to date and get immediate updates is to join the Game Master's Journey community on Google+. And you can also follow me at Lex Starwalker. I'll try to, to post updates to Twitter. But the Game Master's Journey community is probably the best place to keep up to date on what's going on with that. Also, at the top of the show, I want to give a huge thank you to a couple new patrons of Starwalker Studios. Thank you to Darren Larson and Clark Nicholas for becoming patrons. Really great to have you guys aboard and always good to see new patrons and uh, really excited about the Patreon going forward. I think um, now that I've hit the home stretch on this adventure I've been working on, I can start to put more energy into Primordia again. And the other adventures I'm working on, um, which I just kind of briefly mentioned, are set in Primordia. So this adventure that I'm going to kickstart is not set in Primordia. It does have some tie-ins to Primordia. So, you know, if people in the future are running games in Primordia, it would be very easy to use this adventure as part of a Primordia campaign. But the adventure itself does not take place in Primordia. And, you know, if you know anything about my home world of Primordia, it's not going to be at all uncommon to have adventures in other places, other planes, other worlds uh, from Primordia. So, you know, that'll work fine. And part of um, what I really like about the way I've designed this adventure is you can use it no matter what setting you're running your game in, whether that's a published setting like the Forgotten Realms or whether it's your own homebrew setting, it doesn't matter. It's going to be really easy to use this adventure no matter what setting you're using. And it's also going to be easy to use this if, you're, if you've already got a campaign up and running. Uh, the adventure is designed for third level characters. And I have advice in the adventure as far as if you want to start a new campaign with this adventure and just start out with third level characters. I've got advice for that. Or if you want to use this in a campaign you've already got going, I've got advice on how to do that and kind of where to go after you're done with the adventure, all that good stuff. You know, one of the things I really wanted to do with this adventure is kind of use it as a tool for newer GMs to help you learn how to GM. And I think, you know, the best way to learn is by doing and, and a great teaching tool, I think, for learning to GM is, is a well-written adventure that takes the time to um, help you as a GM and give you guidance on on how to actually do this thing called running an RPG. So I try to do that in the adventure, and and that's something definitely the in the Kickstarter. If if we can actually get to the point where I can expand upon it, that is definitely an element of the adventure I'd like to expand upon even more and do even more with is even more advice and guidance for GMs running it, especially um, GMs that that maybe aren't super experienced running games. So anyway, that adventure can be run from a Primordia campaign or a campaign anywhere. But then I'm working on some other adventures that are actually set in Primordia. And those I'm, I'm going to do my best to also make easy to kind of pick up and plop down in any other world that you want to use, because obviously everybody's not going to be playing in my homebrew world. So I'll make them easy to do that, whether you're running in the realms or somewhere else, you know, you can use these adventures. But the the other ones I'm working on are self-contained adventures, but they do connect together or they can connect together. 
I like what Wizards is doing with the adventure paths, like what Paizo's done before and what started in Dungeon Magazine, I think, way back when, you know, having a, an entire campaign worth of adventures, I think is super cool. But on the other hand, how oftentimes do we really finish those? You know, I'll bet if we, we could know how many people have started one of these campaigns versus how many have actually finished them, I, I would bet that a relatively small percentage of people who start these campaigns ever actually finish them just because they're so long. I mean, you're talking oftentimes over a year of playtime in the real world. So, you know, not every group can can stay together that long, even with the best intentions and everybody wanting to. So one thing that I've done in D&D and other games in the past is I've taken various shorter published adventures and put them together into a campaign. And, you know, sometimes that can be fairly easy to do. Sometimes it can be fairly difficult to do depending on the adventures you want to use and, and whether they line up as far as the levels and and what part of the world they take place in and how hard is it to get the player characters from adventure A to adventure B. So I'm going to try and, you know, kill two birds with one stone with the this other series of adventures and produce standalone adventures where you can just run this one adventure and it's a self-contained thing with a beginning, middle and end and a satisfying conclusion But if you want to, you can also run the series of adventures back to back and and have an entire campaign. But because each adventure will kind of have its own resolution, it won't be such a big deal if, like, say there's five adventures total, if you only get through three of them, it won't be as much of a letdown as if you get two thirds of the way through Tyranny of Dragons or Curse of Strahd and you never finish it. Because at least, hopefully, you can finish the current adventure that you're on, even if you don't finish all of the adventures. So I'm pretty excited about that. And, uh, you know, those have been on the back burner while I've been working on the Trickster's Labyrinth. But, you know, this is going to be done soon. And I can return to working on those adventures and just world building of Primordia in general. And just real quickly, um, speaking of Primordia, I have been doing some world building here and there on the side as well. And what I've started working on recently is the map. I don't have a good map of Primordia yet. I've got kind of a very rough sketch of the area around Alondria and what that looks like. But I've started thinking about the larger map of Primordia. I'm not worried about a world map right now because Primordia is a super earth. It's really big. And part of the reasoning behind that is that I can always have more that I can develop in the future. So, you know, I don't want to start with an overview of the world and and nail down what every continent is and what it looks like because I want to have design space in the future that I can expand into. So what I'm going to focus on right now is the continent that Alondria is on. And I'm just going to do that one continent, which itself will be a, a fairly small portion of the entire world and really work on, on fleshing that out. So I, I got to the point where I'm like, you know, I want a map now. I'm, I'm to the point now where I want to start um, really nailing down the topography and the geography and, and start thinking about more about, you know, the different cities that Alondria trades with and the different regions and, and nations maybe even that those are part of and kind of expanding out um, before I then return to Alondria and start drilling down even more 
there. So, so yeah, working on maps is always fun. It's always exciting. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to having something to show for that sometime in, in the near future once we, we get through this Kickstarter and everything. All right, so moving on. I do have a little bit of feedback on some previous episodes that, that I want to cover here at the beginning of the show. I heard from Robert Poulin, uh, who had a comment on episode 141 when I was talking about Wizards of the Coast product replacement policy for D&D and uh, awesome product replacement policy. If you have first printing books, the Player's Handbook, Monster Manual, or Dungeon Master's Guide, and you're having any issues with the binding, with pages falling out or whatever, definitely go check out episode 141. I tell you exactly how you can get those books replaced free of charge, no money out of your pocket at all. And uh, I'm really impressed with Wizards and their product replacement policy. Spoiler, I will tell you that the information on their website is not correct. And, And if you've looked at that, you might think, oh, this is way too many hoops to jump through. But the real process that you go through is way easier than what's described on their website. So check out episode 141 for more information. Now, one thing that I said in 141 was that, according to the website at least, wizards will replace products in all countries on this beautiful earth other than Russia. But I was not sure, you know, what the process would be like outside of the United States So Robert wrote in to tell me that he is in Montreal, Canada, and he got one of his books replaced using their product replacement. And uh, it only took about two weeks for him to get his new book in Montreal, Canada, which is pretty good. Um, I got one of my books replaced. I got my monster manual replaced, and it took uh, just over a week from when I started the process to when I had the book in my hands, which is awesome. And Robert in Montreal, Canada, it took him about two weeks for him to get his new book. And I believe, I believe, I don't have this in my notes here, but I believe Robert told me that that he did not have to pay shipping or anything like that either. So super cool. Again, I don't, I don't have any confirmation outside of Canada and the U.S., but uh, at least uh, for Canada and the U.S., it, it looks like you're, you're not going to have to pay shipping or anything. And again, even if you're in another can- country other than Canada or the U.S., you can get your books re- replaced as long as you're not in Russia. I also heard from John Sweeney, who had a comment on episode 142. And episode 142, I was talking about movement and travel in D&D. And I was wondering about some of the distances as far as what you could travel per day and the different paces and and why they chose the numbers they did. And John says the reason for the weird rounding of two miles per hour being 18 miles in a day and four miles per hour being 30 miles in a day is to integrate these travel rules with the guides for developing campaign maps in the DMG. The only time you really need this level of granularity and travel speed is when you're actually running a wilderness adventure, what was often called back in the day a hex crawl, which is generally done on what in the DMG is called the kingdom scale map, where map hexes are six miles across. So basically, kind of in a nutshell, what I I was confused about in episode 142 is the fact that at the two mile an hour speed, you're traveling 18 miles a day. But at the four mile an hour speed, instead of traveling 36 miles a day, which would be twice 18, you're only traveling 30. 
And I was just kind of wondering what, why that was. And John is basically saying that he thinks it's because of the fact that on the kingdom scale, your hexes are six miles. And so they wanted these travel paces to be evenly divided, divide, evenly divisible by six so that it would work out to even numbers of hexes if you're using a kingdom scale hex map, which makes total sense. So, you know, on one of these maps, the scale is each hex is six miles. So, you know, John points out that back in the day when we do hex crawls back in the AD&D day, that your travel speed was often given in number of hexes. So that's pretty cool. Um, I'm kind of a little embarrassed, I have to say, that, that I didn't put that together. Uh, but, but thank you, John, for writing in and, and clarifying that. So that makes, that makes perf- perfect sense. So if you are doing a hex crawl and you're using those six-mile hexes, then it's going to be really easy to translate those movement speeds per day into hexes. It's going to be a nice, even number. And I don't mean even as in even or odd. I mean even as in there's not going to be any fractions or decimals involved. So, you know, two miles an hour is 18 miles per day, which would be three hexes a day. And then four miles an hour is 30 miles per day, which is six hexes per day. So there you go. Makes perfect sense. So thank you so much, John, for writing in and clarifying that for me. All right, so for our main topic today, I wanted to talk about the GM as teacher. So this is the second in my series of GM roles segments, and the first one was in episode 137 where I talked about the GM as the rules arbiter. So you can go check that out if you haven't listened to that one. So as GMs, we wear a lot of different hats. We have a lot of different roles um, to the point that it can be hard to quickly and concisely explain to someone what being a GM entails. And when someone asks that question, how do I GM? It can be a hard question to answer because there's so much to it. So I thought it would be fun to identify these different roles and explore each one individually. So as GMs, it often falls upon us to teach games to our players whether that's because we have a group of players who are completely new to the hobby and have never played an RPG before, or whether it's because we're trying out a new game. You know, a lot of times, you know, it's the person who goes and buys the new game and reads the book and falls in love with it who ends up running the game for their friends and ends up having to teach the game to their friends. That's just the way it often works out. Now, I know for me personally, I have been a teacher as a, as a GM a lot. And in fact, I would say more often than not, when I'm running a game, at least some of the players at the table have never played that game before. And a lot of times I've never played any tabletop RPG before. When I first started running D&D, when I was in high school, I started running second edition all of my players were pretty much new players. I think I had one or two or three in the group who'd played before, but the whole rest of the group, which was like eight players back then, I, when I was in high school, I was crazy. I, I thought more was better when it came to number of players. I always had huge groups. But all the rest of the players had never played before. So not only did I have to teach them how to play D&D, not only did I have to teach them about the setting, which at the time was Dragonlance, 
But I also had to teach him, you know, how to play an RPG to begin with. And I myself was fairly new to the hobby myself. I'd, I'd only played D&D myself maybe a handful of times before I started running it. Um, so we were kind of all learning together. And honestly, I think that's a great way to do it. And I would say, you know, if you are a new GM or if you're thinking about becoming a new GM, finding new players who are new to the hobby or just new to the game that you're going to run is a great way to start as a GM. It can take a lot of the pressure off of you because the players don't know when you screw up. They don't know any better. And, uh, you know, it can be rough as a GM if you're running for very experienced players who, who maybe are questioning your interpretation of the rules and things like that. And when you have completely novice players, you just don't have any of that to deal with. I've also found that new players are often the best role players because, you know, they don't really understand the mechanics and the rules so much, but they know how to play let's pretend, right? Like everybody knows how to do that. And so they'll tend to focus more on the role playing because that's kind of the part of the game that they feel like they understand better and not so much on the rules and mechanics. And I really like that. So, you know, if you're someone like me that really likes the role playing and storytelling elements of RPGs, oftentimes you, you can have a much better uh, session like that with new players and with more experienced players. Because more experienced players, you'll tend to, to get into your min-maxing and your munchkinism and all that a little bit more often with more experienced players than you will with brand new players. So if you're a GM like me that that's kind of turned off by that kind of thing and, and you like to focus more on the story, sometimes brand new players is where it's at. So honestly, if you DM or GM much at all, you're eventually going to end up teaching new players. It's just going to happen unless you just always play with the same people all the time and they're all experienced players. Um, if you run games much at all, you're going to run for new players and you're going to have to teach new players, especially if you ever run at conventions, then you're going to be running for new players a lot. So probably the, the best advice I can give you when it comes to running for new players is to just be patient and slow down. <laughs> But I do have a few tips here, some things I've learned from my own experience running for new players, both at conventions and just in general. And these are pretty game agnostic or, or game generic. It doesn't really matter uh, what game you're running for, for these tips. It, it's going to be the same kind of thing. And then after we come back from the break later, then I'll have some more D&D specific stuff. But for right now, this is just very general stuff. So my first big piece of advice is when you're sitting down to have your first session with your new players, or actually, hang on, let me back up. Point zero, <laughs> before the first point, let me make point number zero, which is uh, session zero. Session zero is a great thing to do. I'd say that there's a lot of pros, a lot of good reasons to have a session zero. And normally I would recommend having a session zero when you're going to start a game. However, with new players, maybe not so much. And the reason is that I think with a new player, you want to hook them, especially if you, I mean, if all the new players are like all about D&D or whatever game you're playing and they're already completely bought in and, and you don't have to worry, then maybe not. But if you have any players that are at all ambivalent or not sure if this is really for them, or anything like that, then you really want to give them a really good experience. You want to give them a very good first impression that's going to stick with them. 
And in that case, I don't think session zero is the way to go. Um, session zero is great with more experienced players. Session zero is great if you're getting ready to launch like a more long-term campaign. But I think for your first game with your new players, I wouldn't worry about session zero. I'd skip right ahead to session one. So that was kind of our point zero. <laughs> I actually didn't have that in my my notes. It, it, I'm kind of assuming that we're not going to do a session zero um, because a lot of what I'm talking about today is about getting to the action, getting to the fun parts of the game as soon as possible so that your players can be having fun as soon as possible so that they have a good time and they want to come back next week. So my first piece of advice beyond don't worry about session zero is use pre-generated characters for the first adventure for the first session that you play. It's really unfortunate that this hobby often begins with character creation. Because when you think about it, at least for most RPGs, character creation is this weird thing that we do at the very beginning of the game. And then, I mean, if your character dies, you may do it later. (laughs) But for the most part, you do it at the very beginning of the game. It's this weird gameplay experience that you have at the beginning of the game. And then that's it. And and the rest of the time you're playing that character. So you're, you're kind of with a brand new player, especially someone who's never played an RPG before, you're starting them out with an experience that is not what their normal gameplay experience is going to be. You know, that first session, when you start making characters, that's not how most sessions are going to be, right? Most sessions, you're going to sit down and you're going to get into the adventure and start playing. But when you have to make characters, it's like, well, you can't do that yet. First, we have to make characters. So that's kind of weird, you know, when you think about it. And I think it's unfortunate because oftentimes I've found with brand new players who've never played an RPG before, never played this particular game before, um, starting out with character creation is not a great way to hook them. That is not a great way to convince them that this is something fun that they are going to want to do and put time into. So first off, making a character takes some time. And, you know, some games, it takes more time than others. You know, so you, you're talking a game like 3.x D&D or Pathfinder. It takes a lot of time to make a character. But any game, it takes some time, right? It, it just, it's going to take some time. And this whole, you know, before we start playing, we're going to take half an hour or an hour or 15 minutes, whatever it is, or two hours to make a character kind of flies in the face of accepted wisdom when it comes to writing and filmmaking, storytelling, other forms of storytelling, which is you want to begin with some action. And not every story does this. You know, there are lots of movies that you have to sit through 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes of exposition and boring character development before anything exciting happens. But a lot of movies, a lot of stories will start with something interesting and exciting happening. My favorite example for this kind of technique is pretty much any James Bond movie I think I've ever seen starts with an action scene. And oftentimes the action scene doesn't have anything to do with the movie, or if it does, it it doesn't become obvious how it's related to the rest of the movie until later. It just starts in the middle of a chase or a gunfight or something like that. Just something fast paced to get you excited about what's happening and, and to hook you in. And then once the dust settles from that, then we'll have some character development and we'll, we'll take some time for some exposition and let you know what's going on. But we're not going to start out with that because that's boring. And we want to get your adrenaline pumping. We want to get you having fun first. 
And then you'll be more disposed to listen to the description of the city or listen to the explanation of the quest that the NPC wants you to go on or whatever. So starting your first session with brand new players with an hour, half hour, whatever it's going to be of character creation is not beginning with action. It's not beginning with what's the most fun thing about this game that we play. And you want to make a good first impression. You want them to enjoy themselves. You want them to come back. So you want to hook the players with what's cool about playing RPGs. Now, of course, with more experienced players, as as we get into the hobby, a lot of us really enjoy character creation, and probably even most of us do. And, and we would say, no, I, I disagree, Lex. I really enjoy making my character. I, I think that's a very rewarding part of the game. And that's true, but you've already bought into the hobby at that point, right? You're, you're already sold on RPGs are fun things to do. And you know that this investment of time at the beginning to make this character is going to pay dividends as you explore and grow that character going forward. But a brand new player doesn't know that. They don't have that experience yet. So for a brand new player, it's usually better to just get them into the action and not have to make them suffer through character creation first. So however much time making a character takes in whatever game you're running, that's kind of downtime or dead time that these new players have to sit through before they get to the fun part. And you want to get to the fun part from the beginning, right away, from square one. So in many RPGs, making a character takes some mastery or at least some proficiency with the system And a new player isn't going to have that. So not only is starting with character creation kind of delaying the fun part of the game for a new player, it's also possible that they're going to be confused and you're going to spend a lot of time explaining things that the players aren't going to completely understand because they haven't even played the game yet. You know, D&D is a perfect example of this. It can be really difficult to explain to a new player ability scores and what their ability score bonuses mean and and why this is important when they've never even had a combat or done a skill check yet. They don't even really understand how the game works yet. So how can they really understand, you know, what attributes they want their character to have? Now, if you do force your new players to make characters for that first game, a lot of times they're later on going to come to regret at least some of the decisions they made when they made those characters as they've more fully grasped the system. And they're going to say, oh, you know, if I would have known the way the mechanics work, I would have had a 16 strength instead of a 15 strength because I could have had another bonus to my hit and damage, that kind of thing. Or they might regret what class they took. Maybe they didn't really understand the different roles that the different classes play And, you know, maybe they wouldn't have rolled a cleric if they would have totally understood what a cleric was all about and how the game really works. They might take skills or abilities or spells that they never end up using that at the time when they made the character before they played the game, they thought, oh, this spell sounds really cool. But it turns out in actual gameplay, they never use that spell and it's a total waste to have it on their character sheet. On the other hand, there there might be really important skills like, say, perception that nobody takes because it doesn't seem fun or interesting. And then later on, they realize, oh, wow, I probably should have taken perception. Or as a rogue, I probably should have taken stealth, things like that. So no matter how much you can help and guide your players in the character creation process, which a good GM will do that, you know, you can't completely predict what they're going to want. And once that player 
has a more firm grasp of the system, chances are good that there's going to be something about what they did with their character that they would have done differently. So it can be really hard to make a character that you're going to be happy with when you don't even understand how the game works yet. And this is even more true if you haven't ever played an RPG before. Also, I have literally seen players turned off of this hobby because of character creation, especially in the Pathfinder 3.5 days. Um, I've told the story, I think, more than once on the show about how I, I got my wife to, to agree to try an RPG, even though she didn't think it was really going to be for her. And I made the terrible mistake of starting out with having her make a Pathfinder character. And by the time she was done making a Pathfinder character, even though I helped her a lot, she didn't even want to play anymore. Now, if I would have given her a pre-generated Pathfinder character and we would have just started the adventure, maybe things would have turned out differently. Who knows? So if you start out and have them just use pre-generated characters, you know, you skip that whole character creation process for that first session or two. And then once, you know, they get a handle on the game, then they'll be excited to make their own character. And a lot of times the player will come to you and say, hey, I'm really digging this. Can I make my own character now? I, I really want to create my own character. You know, so you could even just wait until the players come to you and say, I want to make my own character now. And then say, sure, you don't have to play the pre-gen anymore. So luckily in this day and age, there are often pre-generated characters you can get for your game. If your game has something like a beginner box, and I, I know D&D has this and Star Wars, and I think Pathfinder does as well, then a lot of times those, those starter sets will come with pre-generated characters, or at the very least, they'll have ones that you can download from their website. Or you can make pre-generated characters yourself. And what I would recommend, whether you're using published pre-generated characters or whether you're making them yourself, is have a few more options than you're going to have players so that you know they have as many to choose from as you can without having too many to where it's like paralyzing because there are too many options. You know, So if you have four players, maybe have six pre-gens for them to choose from. Now, the nice thing, if you make the pre-generated characters yourself, is that you can make sure that those characters are viable mechanically, you know, that, that they're, they're built well for the game that you're running. And you can also make sure that all the bases are covered as far as any abilities that need to be covered or any skills or, or anything like that that the party's going to need to get through the adventure you're going to run you can make sure that those pre-generated characters have that. You can also make sure that all of these characters have good ties and hooks into the adventure itself and good ties with one another. So there's my first big piece of advice with new players. Start with pre-generated characters, either ones that, that you get with the adventure that you're running or, or with the game that you're running or ones that you make yourself. Personally, if you have the time and, and you have the skill and the know-how, I would recommend making the pre-generated characters yourself. Um, unless you have a really good kind of introductory adventure as part of like a starter set kind of thing. Like I know D&D has, has the starter set with Lost Minds of Fandelver, um, which I don't honestly think is a great beginning adventure. It's okay, but I, I think you could do better. I think I could do better. Um, but if you have a good adventure like that that comes with pre-gens, then, then usually, you know, those should be uh, well-crafted to fit the adventure but otherwise, you know, if you're running something of your own creation or, or a module that you've gotten somewhere, 
I would definitely recommend making your own pre-generated characters, making sure that those characters have, have good ties to one another, make sure that they have good solid reasons to participate in the adventure that you want to run, and make sure that they're mechanically solid so that you know you don't want to give a player a character that sucks, right? So yeah. So my next big piece of advice after you know using pre-generated characters is start with a short adventure. Um, Start with an adventure that you can get through in one or two or at most three game sessions, like four hour sessions. If you're shopping for an adventure or you're creating the adventure yourself, keep the adventure to something relatively simple and straightforward. The goal with this first adventure is just to introduce the game to the players, introduce the hobby, introduce the system, the mechanics, and, and just show how everything works. It's okay, and I would say it's even good, if this first adventure is fairly linear and plot-directed. I think that it's best if it is. Um, I don't think you want to start out with brand new players' first adventure with a complete sandbox. You want something that's going to give them a clear direction of what to do next. Make sure the adventure has a solid hook and good reasons for those characters in character to participate in that adventure. If it doesn't, come up with them, and again, you know, build those into the pre-generated characters that you're going to use. Also, when you begin the adventure itself, begin with an exciting scene. Easy way to do this is begin with a combat and maybe roll initiative yourself for this first combat, but ahead of time, so you don't even have to start with rolling initiative. You can start in media res in the middle of the action. In the middle of the combat, you already have the initiative order figured out, and just start in the middle of a combat or some other kind of tense situation. Do not start the first adventure, you know, with the cliche of they're in a tavern and nothing's happening. Don't start with a scene where you expect them to do a lot of role playing. Start with action. Um, let them kind of get into the swing of things literally um, before you throw role playing at them, you know, cause role playing is the most awkward thing for new players and it's a really terrible way to start the first session for new players is with role playing. And this is, I'm speaking from experience here. This is a mistake I've made myself more times than I can count. I I've even recently (laughs) made this mistake. I think in general with the first adventure of a campaign or the beginning of a one shot, I think in general with your first session, you should not start with a role playing scene. You should start with some kind of action, a chase or combat or something like that. But definitely with brand new players, that's what you want to do. So ideally in this first session, you should introduce and use all of the major mechanics of the game. So for example, in a D&D game, in that first session, you should use various ability checks, including some social checks. You should have at least one combat so the characters can see how initiative works how attack rolls and damage rolls and spell casting works, healing, recovering and resting and all that stuff. Try to to showcase all of the kind of foundational elements of the mechanics of your game in that first session so they can kind of see how everything works. So I suggested, you know, for that first combat, start start the session with a combat right away. Don't start with initiative, start in the middle of the combat. Um, But, you know, do that if you're going to have more than one combat because you want them to see how initiative works. So ideally, you know, you start with a combat in the middle of combat, you've already figured out the initiative order. And then the second combat, have them roll initiative for that. Now, this is a little tangent here, 
But um, for D&D specifically and other turn-based games where you have some kind of initiative that you roll to determine combat order, a little trick that I've figured out recently that I think works really well is have initiative rolled before you get to the scene where the combat is or where you're going to need initiative because you can use initiative for things other than combat. So what I would recommend is at the beginning of the session, before you even start, have everybody roll initiative and record those numbers. And there's a couple good reasons to do this. First of all, it gets rid of that um, loss and momentum that you get when you're, you're building the scene, it's coming to a combat, and we go into combat, and now we got to stop and roll initiative and record initiative, and it just like derails everything. You lose all your momentum. If you already have initiative for all the players, and you've already rolled initiative for the NPCs ahead of time, you already have your initiative order set up before you even get to that scene, then as soon as we go into combat, boom, the first person acts. There's no pause to roll initiative. The other big asset to this is a lot of times just asking for an initiative role, especially with less experienced players, will tend to encourage them to fight. And I've, I've seen this recently with, with some games I've run where I'll have a situation where I don't think it necessarily needs to be a combat I don't think even necessarily it should be a combat, but you know, players start saying, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And, and just to kind of order things, I call for an initiative role. And just because I say role for initiative, all of a sudden everybody's assuming that we're going to fight now. And it goes like the possibility of parlay or diplomacy just goes out the window just because I said role initiative. So that, especially with D&D, that's unfortunately a thing. It's been kind of brainwashed into us as, as soon as we hear roll for initiative. Um, it's combat. I, I think it's even worse with people that watch Critical Role because <laughs> that's how that show works, um, which is a lot of people these days. So, you know, a lot of players are kind of trained. As soon as they hear roll for initiative, they think it's combat. And, and I've just found so many times that it's almost like the players think as a DM, I'm telling them that I want it to be a combat or I want them to fight. And that may not be the case. I may just be using initiative as a way to make sure everybody gets a turn. So those are two really good reasons to roll initiative ahead of time. So what I do or what I try to do is at the very beginning of the session, before we even start, I have everybody roll initiative. I record that. If I know what the first encounter is going to be, I go ahead and roll initiative for the NPCs and I go ahead and set up the turn order so it's all ready to go when that comes. And then when the encounter happens, we just go right into it. We don't have to pause for initiative. And if I don't know ahead of time what the first encounter is going to be, a lot of times you won't. I'll just wait until, you know, I see it coming. Like, you'll see it coming, right? Before you're to the point where dice need to roll, you'll know, okay, uh, this negotiation is going to get tense and I'm going to want to use initiative or this is going to end up being a combat and I'm going to want to use initiative. And so as soon as you realize that, you can behind the screen make your initiative rolls for the NPCs and the players won't know what you're doing. And then once you finish that first encounter, whether it's combat or not, but once you finish that first encounter that uses those initiative numbers that you had them roll at the beginning of the game, then at the end of that encounter, have them roll initiative again and then you can use those numbers for the next encounter. And um, it takes some some getting used to to get into the habit to remember at the end of an encounter to roll initiative so that you don't have to roll at the beginning of the next encounter. But it works really, really well. So I really recommend you try that out. All right. So, so I was saying start with a short adventure 
one or two sessions, at most three sessions. And, you know, part of the reason of this is, is you want this to be straightforward. And part of the reason is you're doing this with pre-gens and you want to give the players a session or two or maybe three if you just can't get through the adventure in two sessions to get used to the game and get a feel for it. But then you want to be able to have a break after that first adventure where for those players that are ready, they can roll their own characters. You don't want to force them to play these pre-gens any longer than they want to. So I think two sessions is kind of the sweet spot. Most players after two sessions, they've kind of grasped the game enough that they're ready to make it make a, a character. And if they're not, they can keep playing their pre-gen if they want. So we'd start with a short session. We start with action. First scene should be action of some kind. We're, we're showing the, the basic mechanics of the game, whatever game you're playing, you know, trying to, to use each mechanic at least once in that first session or at least in that first adventure. And at least for the first session, try to keep it relatively short. Aim for shorter than what you normally go for. So for instance, if you normally play four-hour sessions, I'd personally shoot for that first session to play for two or three hours. And there's two reasons for that, really. The first reason is it's going to take a lot longer than you think it will because the players are going to have a lot of questions. It's just going to take longer. And the other reason is you want to have lots of time at the end for questions. I'd allow at least an hour at the end of that first session for people to ask questions and, and to just talk about the game and, and what people think and, and just answer questions. So once you finish this first adventure, the players can then either keep playing with their pre-generated characters that they want, or they can then make their new character. This is also at the end of this first short adventure is the perfect time for a player to bow out if they've decided this isn't for them, whether they're new to the hobby and they've decided that this hobby isn't for them, or maybe they're new to this particular game and they decide this game isn't for them, or maybe they decide you're not the GM for them, or this isn't the group for them or whatever. You know, this is an ideal time for a player to say, hey, look guys, I had fun, but I don't think I'll be coming back. And there doesn't need to be any hard feelings because you finished that adventure and, you know, it's no sweat. So, you know, that's another good reason to keep that first adventure short. That, that way it's minimum buy-in for these players so they can get a taste for the game and then they can decide, do I want to keep going or not? And if they do want to keep going, do I want to roll my own character now or do I want to keep playing this pre-generated character? Now, ideally, this first adventure should tie into the next, next adventure you want to run in some way. So for those players who keep playing, whether they make a new character or keep playing their pre-generated character, that, that it's not like, oh, now we're doing something completely different, that it can feel like this is a continuation of the story that we began. But there was enough, enough of a break there that players can make new characters if they want to. Now, I would recommend that you keep all the players and all their characters on an even footing. So, you know, let's say you're running D&D, you do this first adventure, it takes you a couple sessions to get through it. And let's say at the end of that first adventure, the, the player characters have advanced to third level. They're playing these pre-generated characters. Maybe you've got four players and maybe two of the players want to keep playing their pre-generated characters, which are now third level. And the two other players want to make their own characters. 
well, I wouldn't punish or tax those new those players making new characters by making them make first level characters. Let them make their new characters and then help them level those new characters to third level so everybody's on the same page, everybody's at the same level. Because otherwise you're just encouraging the players to play the pregens and they should not, you know, they they shouldn't feel like they're being punished because now they they want to make their own character like we want them to make their own character, right? They're going to be much more attached to a character that they make themselves than some pregen. So we don't want to tax them because they're now ready to, to make that step to making a new character. And even if the entire group makes new characters and you might be like, well, everybody's making new characters so we can start at level one and it'll be cool. It's still going to feel like to those players, like they're losing ground. It's like, wow, we, you know, we played two sessions. We, we earned our way up to level three but now, you know, we're making new characters, so we have to start level one again. So I would recommend not doing that and let them make third level characters. Let them pick up where they left off with the old characters. And you can do this in the future, too. So my example, I said we, we have four players. We play a couple sessions. They're level three. Two of the players are like, you know what? I'm not ready to make my own character yet. I'm going to keep playing the pregens. If they later decide that they want to now make new characters, I would let them make new characters that are the same level as what the other characters are. Now, once you're you're going into the second adventure, then if you're the kind of GM where you like to run a more sandboxy campaign, then you can start getting more sandboxy. You can start taking those training wheels off. You know, I did recommend for that first adventure to keep it linear and straightforward you know, so that the players don't have to be self-directed if they don't want to. Now, if they want to be, you know, if they want to go off script or go off the rails on the first adventure, definitely let them. But the rails are just there or the training wheels, as I like to call them, are there if they need them so that they, they don't sit there like, what do we do? I don't understand what we do. They have a very clear trail of breadcrumbs to follow in that first adventure. But if you want to open it up in the second adventure and, and give them more choices, you know, feel free to do that. You know, you need to evaluate your players and kind of gauge where they're at, what they're ready for, what they're comfortable with. Remember, our goal as, as a GM in these sessions with these new players is we want to teach them the game, but we also want them to have fun because we want them to come back, right? We, we don't want to scare them away. We want them to keep coming back and become regular players. Now, during this first adventure that you run, I would really recommend, and especially during the first session, to take it slow, take your time, be patient. Don't be worried about, quote, how far they get, right? Don't worry about how far into the adventure the player characters get. You know, remember, again, your goal as a GM, you know, no matter what you're doing as a GM, you should always remember your goal. Hopefully your goal is always for everyone to have a good time, the players and yourself. Hopefully that's always a goal. But in, you know, these first sessions, your goal is also to teach the game and for the players to have fun and for the players to come back. Your goal isn't to get through the adventure in one session or to get through it in two sessions. Who cares about that? The goal is, is everyone having fun? That's the goal. So just worry about that. Don't worry about how far they get. And I would also say, you know, during the first adventure, especially the first session, is not the time to be super anal rules lawyer GM. Right. Let, let the players take back actions. You know, if, if they say something cocky to the NPC and they they want to be like, oh, no, I didn't say that, you know, let them get away with that kind of stuff. Now, if you are normally very strict about those things, you know, let them know, say, look, I'll let you take back that cocky thing you said to the guard because it's your first time and you're new. 
But in the future, just understand that once you say something in character, you said that thing and you can't take it back. But this one time, I'll allow it. You can explain that, but, but you know, give them some leeway for that first session. In the same way, you know, if you don't like metagaming talk at your table, you know, be, be a little more lax with that the first time. But again, you know, let the players know, say, hey, you guys are kind of metagaming here. You're having this conversation in combat that your characters really couldn't have. I'm okay with it tonight because you guys are new, but just so you know, in the future, this isn't going to fly. Because that's the thing is, you know, you want to be lenient for these first few sessions and you, you know, you want to take it easy on the players, let them get comfortable, but you also don't want them to form bad habits. So if you are letting them get away with things that you normally wouldn't, I do think it's a good idea to call that out to the players and let them know, you know, hey, just, you know, we're on easy mode right now, but this is just for the beginning. And then the gloves come off and we're playing hard mode and you won't be able to do these things anymore. Just let them know what your expectations are going to be. Also, for this first adventure, you might want to consider giving out more player handouts than you normally would. You might want to do things like printing out the player character's abilities and spells and what they can do so they don't have to look them up, especially if all your players aren't going to have a copy of the book. If, on the other hand, you know they all have the book, then you might not want to do that. Again, you know, we're allowing lots of time in these early sessions. And you might want to have them look stuff up during combat and let them get in the habit of looking up their spells in the book or looking up their abilities in the book and learning where those things are in the book. So, you know, it's up to you whether you want to try to make things a little more fluid and and have stuff ready for them or if you want to teach them to be more self-sufficient and let them start learning to look things up for themselves from the very beginning. So again, you know, I I think if you just keep in mind and stay focused on the players having a good time and teaching them the game and giving them the mechanics in bite-sized pieces by example, you know, as opposed to sitting down for an hour before the session and explaining the rules, just start running the game. Just start with a combat and explain as you go. Explain rules as they come up. You know, don't, don't explain a saving throw until someone has to make a saving throw. And then the first time someone has to make a saving throw, then you can explain how saving throws work. And I think that if you focus on the players having fun and you focus on just running the game and just teaching organically as things come up and just taking your time at the beginning and and being a little bit more lenient than you normally would, I think that not only will you teach the players the game but they'll have fun learning the game and it won't feel like they're sitting in class at school. It'll feel like they're playing a game and it's always easier to learn things when it has that feeling of play. And again, you know, I, I would not, if you're the kind of GM who normally worries about how far the PCs get in an adventure on a given session, I would not worry about it with your new players during their, these first few sessions. Just uh, let them have fun You know, if they spend the whole night in the tavern, which I wouldn't start in a tavern, but well, you could start in a tavern with a bar fight, right? I just wouldn't start in a tavern with nothing going on and they don't know what to do. But if you're starting in the tavern with a bar fight and they never leave the tavern that first night, if they have fun, that's fine. Who cares? All that matters is is that they're having fun. And even in a tavern, you could probably come up with ways for them to make all the different checks that they can make and make saving throws and take damage and take short rests and all that stuff. And just let them learn by doing and have fun. This is Shane from the Total Party Thrill Podcast, and you're listening to Lex Starwalker, 
on Game Master's Journey. I want to give a quick shout out to the patrons of Starwalker Studios. The support of the patrons makes this show possible. If you enjoy Game Master's Journey and you'd like to give a little back, becoming a patron is a great way to do so. Patrons get some cool perks like game material I make for Primordia and access to a special monthly podcast I produce just for the patrons. I'd also like to give a huge shout out and thank you to my tier four patron, Mr. Steve Strickland. Let's hear it for Steve. Yeah. Yes. You the man. Thank you so much, Steve. And thank you to all the patrons. You can find out more about becoming a patron by clicking on the Patreon button at the top of the show notes at starwalkerstudios.com. All right, for the second part of our topic as the GM as teacher today, I thought I would really quickly just give some advice for me to you, the Dungeon Master for 5th Edition D&D. Just um, some things I've learned from running the game that if you're a, a new DM and or running for new players, just recommendations I would make for this game specifically. First piece of advice I would give is start the player characters at third level. First and second level play in fifth edition is really kind of this weird anomaly. It's kind of like how <laughs> I talked about the first session. You have this weird anomaly of character creation and then the rest of the game isn't anything like that. First and second level are the same way. Playing at first and second level is in a lot of ways very different from all the rest of the game. It just plays differently at first and second level than it does afterwards. Part of that is the player characters are just much more fragile. They, they have not very many hit points. They have not great armor class a lot of times. They don't have a lot of spells or abilities to draw upon. So I think it's actually a lot more challenging as a GM to run the game for first and second level characters than it is for characters level third and beyond. So if you're a new DM, I think it will just be easier on you starting with third level player characters. And if you're running for new players, I think it will be easier on the players starting with third level characters. So I recently started an in-person campaign in my homebrew world of Primordia, and all of my players were either completely new to RPGs and completely new to D&D or had only played maybe once or twice. So I started the group at first level um, because at first level, there's they have less abilities to deal with. If you're a spellcaster, you have less spells to cast. If you're some other kind of character, you have less class abilities to deal with. And also because I've run enough low-level 5th edition games that I'm comfortable in being able to create an adventure that will work well for first-level characters and, and also able to run the adventure in a way that I'm not going to kill all the player characters without meaning to. But I did, after that very first session, level them to level two, and then it took two sessions for them to get to level three after that. And like I said, I did it that way because I've had a lot of experience with fifth edition, and I was confident that I could do whatever I needed to do on the, ply on the fly while I'm running the game to get the results I wanted. But in general, I would recommend starting at third level, whether you're fairly new as a DM or whether you have fairly new players or both. You know, if you are starting at first or second level, you've really got to take it easy on the player characters at those levels 
And I actually usually try to design adventures for levels one and two with very little combat and with the fights being fairly easy and also with fights that can be completely avoided through role-playing if uh, the, the players pursue that. Now, one, one thing that you could do if you're kind of like me and, and you're like, you know, I don't want to start them out with third level characters because I feel like it's a, a bit too many abilities for them to handle, especially if you're talking brand new players. What you could do and what I've considered doing in the future is starting them out with the hit points um, of a third level character, but just give them the uh, abilities, the class abilities and spells of a first level character and then after that first session, give them their second level class abilities. And then after the second session, give them their third level class abilities and then level them normally from then on so that, you know, they've at least got more hit points and more hit dice to use for short rests and things uh, for those first couple sessions. So that's just uh, my, my kind of little piece of advice for uh, running D&D and what I think works best. I, I really feel like <laughs> it's weird because I feel like in a way, you know, first and second level are like the apprentice levels. Like you don't even have your full class abilities yet. And it seems like they're intended for new players to kind of ease you into the system. But at the same time, it's so hard to design encounters for first level characters, especially and it's so easy to TPK a first level party without even meaning to, or at least kill a player character or two. And opinions may differ on this, but I personally don't think that killing a player's character is a great way to introduce a new player to D&D. Not if you want them to come back, not if you want them to be in the hobby. And sure, you know, people say, oh, my first player character died and I loved it. And sure, but I think most players, uh, that's not going to be a good first experience for them. And that's not how I roll. That's not how I run games for new players. You know, if they do something stupid and get themselves killed, like that's totally different. But just the fact that they they only have six hit points or or the dice were unfriendly to them um, and they die and lose their character that they spent time making. Um, yeah, that's not fun. But that's another good reason to use pre-gens because nobody cares so much when their pre-gen gets killed, right? So that's another great reason to use pregens for that first adventure, because then if someone does die, who cares? It was a pregen. Now you have a good reason to make your own character. So, you know, that's my advice for GMs as far as with new players and just in general, start at third level is what I would recommend. And some more advice uh, specific to D&D 5th um, edition for, for newer GMs, I would really recommend using the Milestone XP. Um, you can either hand out XP in chunks, like, you know, one way you could do it is say, I want to take one session to get from level one to two. I have three encounters planned for that session. Each player character needs to gain 300 XP to gain level two. So I'll just say that each player character gets 100 XP for each of those encounters, right? So each milestone is 100 XP per player character. So you could do it that way if you know, you know, exactly where you want them to level, just decide, you know, and you know how many milestones there are going to be. Just take how much XP they're going to need, divide it by the number of milestones, and that's how much they get per milestone. So that's one easy way to do it. Or you could just level them up when they want and don't even worry about XP at all. Say, you know what, you know that line on your character sheet that says XP? You can just put your favorite color there or something because we're not going to worry about XP. You're never going to have to worry about how much XP you have because I'm just going to decide everybody levels at this point. 
That's by far the easiest way to handle it. And as far as why, the main reason is just dealing with the encounter-based experience. It's just a pain in the ass and it's, there's no payoff. It's not worth it. <laughs> you do all this number crunching, you know, trying to juggle numbers and trying to make sure that the player characters have enough encounters to level when you need them to level. And you, you just waste all this time crunching numbers and it's just, it's mental masturbation. Like there's no reason for it. Um, the only possible reason I can think of to even track XP is if you want to penalize players who miss or on the flip side, reward players who don't miss. And you can still do that with the milestone method if you just award a fixed XP amount for a milestone. If the player's there when, the, when that award happens and they get the award, if they're not there, they don't get it. And then that way you have the players who are there every week are leveling slightly faster than the ones who aren't. And you still don't have to crunch numbers and be like, oh crap, you know, at the end of the session, they're going to be five XP shy of what they need to level and they really need to be eighth level for the next session. So now I got to squeeze in another encounter. Like you don't have to worry about that crap anymore. You can focus on the story, focus on what actually makes the game fun. Counting XP, I don't think makes the game fun for very many, if any players out there. Now, I guess there could be an argument if you're the kind of GM where you give different amounts of XP to different players. And I know some GMs still do it that way. That's a very old school way of doing it. Um, every adventure I've seen for 5th edition, at least the official ones, assume that you're giving the group XP and dividing it evenly amongst all the players and NPCs in the group. That's the way I recommend you you do it. So I guess that would be another recommendation. Give everybody the same amount of XP. Take the number of P PCs and NPCs in the group and just hand out XP to the group, divide it evenly among everybody who's there and everybody gets that amount. Don't worry about, oh, the, the rogue picked this lock so he gets this much of an XP and you know, these two player characters fought this monster, so they get this XP, and these other two player characters fought that monster, so they get that XP. You are just making your job so much harder than it needs to be, and nobody cares but you. You know, even in those games where the DMs do that and everybody gets individual XP, nine times out of ten, the DM is the only person that cares about that. The players don't care. <laughs> They're just like, just tell me how much XP I have. I don't care. The DM is the only one that cares, and that is a super anal DM that would probably enjoy DMing a lot more if, if that DM could just get over that and just not worry about it. <laughs> there are much more important things you can spend your time worrying about. So yeah, give everybody the same amount of XP and use milestones. Don't worry about how much XP they get per encounter based on the monsters that they fight and the challenge ratings and, oh, what, what should this trap be worth? And that's the other thing. When you don't use milestones... And, you know, I figured this out designing adventures is you got to worry about, oh, what's this role playing encounter worth? What's this trap worth? It's like, who knows? I don't know. We just got to come up with something. Right. And, and that's a lot of stuff you don't have to worry about if you just do milestones. And, you know, again, there's different ways you can do milestones. You could say a milestone is a level's worth of XP. And you're just like, you guys all gain level nine today. You could do it that way. Or you could say every time you do something important, you get X amount of XP however you want to do it. You can define those milestones as much or as little as you want. So you can get all the granularity that you want in the milestones, but you don't have to worry about 
you know, oh, I have to throw in a completely meaningless encounter that has nothing to do with anything just so that they have enough XP. Just give them the amount of XP you need them to have. It's that simple. All right, so enough about XP. I would recommend using the guidelines in the Unearthed Arcana for balancing encounters as opposed to the guidelines in the Dungeon Master's Guide. I talk more about this in episode 136, and I revisit it in uh, the beginning of the show in some of the other episodes after 136. But uh, in a nutshell, those guidelines are much easier to use, and you don't need a calculator to use them, and they're just easier to use. However, there are a few things that you want to be aware of and be careful of when you're using uh, the Unearthed Arcana guidelines. And again, go check out episode 136 and the other episodes where I talk about this for more details. So one thing to be mindful of when you're using those is if you're making encounters with multiple monsters, a lot of times if you check those with the guidelines in the DMG, you will actually be making deadly encounters if you follow the guidelines in the Unearthed Arcana. So I would just be aware of that and a pretty easy rule of thumb so you don't have to cross-check with the DMG all the time is anytime you're using multiple monsters and you're using the Unearthed Arcana guidelines, if you want the encounter to be medium difficulty instead of deadly, reduce the number of the lesser minion monsters by two. Um, Or if you want that encounter to be easy, reduce the number by four. Or I guess if you want it to be hard, reduce it by one. Um, But again, uh, the, the nutshell explanation is the guidelines in the Unearthed Arcana are not applying the multiplier for having more than one monster. And because of that, they're giving you uh, what are oftentimes deadly encounters when you have larger numbers of monsters. So again, I would just reduce that number that you came up with of how many goblins you're going to have by one, two, or three, depending if you want it to be hard, medium, or easy. And again, if, if you like doing math, you, you can cross-check with the, uh, the numbers in the DMG. They, they are using the same numbers, and you'll, you'll see when you start getting into that, that deadly range. Another piece of advice I would give to new GMs running D&D is roll behind the screen. Especially as a new GM, you're going to have to find your way in designing encounters. Even if you're running published adventures, not all encounters are designed equally. Some of them just aren't designed very well. Some of them are way easier than than you think they should be or they're way harder than you think they should be. Um, So even if you're using published adventures, until you get some experience as a DM, you're going to run into some surprises uh, with encounters that are harder or easier than you think they're going to be. If you're rolling behind the screen and you're keeping your roll secret, then you have some wiggle room there. If things start to go south, whether it's way too easy or way too hard, you can do some fudging and you can you can mitigate that. If you're rolling everything out in the open, then you're a slave to the dice and uh, you, you can't mitigate that. There's a problem with the encounter that either you or someone else designed. Just sometimes, you know, randomness being the way it is, is there might be nights that you just can't roll lower than an 18 on your 20-sided die. And you're rolling 20s all over the place. And and if you run it completely, quote, fair, you're going to be critting and killing player characters left and right. And unless you and your players think that's fun, uh, you might want to mitigate that, which, again, is something that you can do when you're rolling behind the screen. 
So, you know, it's nice to say, you know, if you that sixth critical that you roll in a row on the same PC, it's nice to be able to say, oh, he just hit you and did normal damage or, oh, he missed you. Now, a nice trick that you can use if you're in the situation where an encounter turns out to be way too easy is instead of just throwing a bunch of hit points at, at your monsters, which I usually frown at doing uh, after engagement, you know, I'm fine with beefing up a monster's hit points before I start the encounter because I think it needs more hit points. But once we're in the encounter, I think it's kind of lame as a GM just to add a bunch of hit points to your monster because you think it's going down too fast. A much better way to handle that is have reinforcements show up, have some more goblins show up or some other creature show up and have successive waves of reinforcements. So, you know, when you have reinforcements show up, you, you want to be conservative you know, you don't want to have reinforcements show up and completely wipe out the PCs unless that's what you're trying to do. Um, so I would recommend being conservative as far as how many reinforcements show up. And then you can always have more show up, right? But on the other hand, if you have reinforcements show up or if things are starting to go really badly for the PCs, worse than you want, you can always have monsters run away too. Another piece of advice is to stick with the guidelines in the Dungeon Master's Guide when it comes out to handing out magic items. I have found with myself and with many other GMs out there, when you're first starting out, uh, you tend to want to be too generous with magic items because let's face it, magic items are cool. You're like, hey, it'll make the game more cool if the PCs have some cool magic items. It'll be more fun for everybody. And I think some of it also can sometimes be lack of confidence as a GM. And you're like, well, if I give this player a holy Avenger, then he's going to like the adventure, right? So I think sometimes we do it because we want the, the players to have fun and we're not confident in ourselves as GMs. So we kind of try to bribe them with magic items or treasure or whatever. Um, but for whatever reason, I've noticed that a lot of new GMs tend to go a little crazy with the treasure and the magic items. Now, giving your PCs a bunch of extra gold isn't probably going to break the game, especially because there's so many ways that, that they could lose that gold. But giving them too many and too powerful magic items too soon could break your game. So I would really recommend until you have a lot of experience under your belt as a GM to stick with the guidelines in the DMG. So you can find those in the magic items chapter in the treasure chapter in the DMG. And they have a little chart that, that gives you guidelines of what kind of magic items to give out to player characters, depending on what level they are. Also, if you just use the treasure tables in the D DMG and you roll for magic items fairly, or you choose them from the tables fairly, you shouldn't go wrong. If you're using the correct tables for the CR of monsters that they're fighting, as long as you're, not throwing like really high power monsters at them and then completely softballing. If you're doing that, then then you could get into troubles. But if you're throwing appropriate encounters at them, then the treasures that you come up with, you should be okay and within those guidelines. But for example, you know, that table says, you know, PCs shouldn't be getting rare magic items until they're at least fifth level. So that's, I'd take that to the bank. I would not hand out a rare item to PCs that are less than fifth level. Or if I did, I'd only hand out one. See how that goes before you hand out one to everybody. And, you know, the reason for this is, you know, there's nothing wrong with making players happy, or at least not in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem can be if you hand out too many items or too powerful of items, the player characters will get too far ahead of the power curve that's assumed by the game. And it makes it 
more and more difficult for you as a GM to design encounters for them because if you are following the guidelines in the DMG for designing encounters, they're way too easy because the player characters are far more powerful than what the DMG is or the Unearthed Arcana is assuming because they're not assuming that your fifth level PGs, PGs, PCs have legendary magic items, okay? So it just makes your job harder because now in, in addition to trying to figure out how to build a good encounter to begin with, now you also have to try to figure out how to um, ramp that encounter up to compensate for the fact that your fifth level PCs have legendary magic items. So it's just easier for you to kind of stay within the bounds of what the game assumes until you really are comfortable with designing encounters, making them easier and harder, whether that's what well, I would say both in your design when you're prepping for your session and also on the fly, being able to make an encounter easier, harder on the fly without the players realizing you're doing it in, in a good um, thematic story focused way and not just throwing hit points on your monsters. So until you're comfortable doing all those things, I would stay within the parameters of what the game suggests just because it's going to make your life easier. And finally, my last piece of advice for new GMs, don't forget to have fun. <laughs> we, we can get so focused on, you know, doing a good job and, and, you know, getting all the rules right and remembering all the, the intricacies of what different NPCs have got going on and what they're going to do. And we can get so focused in tunnel vision on being a good GM we can actually forget to have fun. So yes, as a GM, you should be focused on your players having fun. That's a big part of being a good GM, but also have fun yourself and don't forget to have fun yourself. Even if it means maybe I'm not going to crack open the book and look up that rule because I don't think that would be fun. I just want to keep going. Whatever it means, you know, do what you got to do to have fun as a GM, because I guarantee you, if you're not having fun, you're going to get burnt out and you're not going to want to do it anymore. And your players won't like that if you don't want to GM anymore. So it's good for everybody, your players too, if you're having fun. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you're having fun, if your players are having fun, that's what really matters. It doesn't really matter if you get all the rules right. It doesn't really matter if the boss fight was too easy or was too hard. If everybody's having fun, it's all good. And also, you know, for any GM, whether you're experienced or inexperienced, I occasionally or often or all the time ask your players for feedback. You know, at the end of the session, ask them what they thought, if they have any feedback. Um, it can be really helpful to hear what they have to say, things they like, things they don't like, things that they hope will come up in the future in the campaign, things they'd like to see, stuff like that. Kinds of adventures they'd like to play, places they'd like to go in the world, just any kind of feedback that the players can give you will help you improve as a GM and give you a better idea of what they're going to enjoy as you're planning for future sessions. And finally, I think another great thing about asking for feedback from your players is most of us as GMs are far harder on ourselves than our players are. And you may find, you may be afraid to ask for feedback, but you may find when you do that your players are having more fun than you realize, that your players are more impressed with your campaign and, and the adventure than, than what you think. And you may come to find out that you're doing a lot better job as a GM than you think you are. So definitely ask for feedback. I think you'll be glad that you did. All 
All right. Well, that is going to wrap it up for episode 144 of Game Master's Journey. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this discussion of the GM as a teacher as much as I did. Um, If there's anything I missed or any advice that you have for GMs when it comes to teaching the game and teaching RPG gaming in general to our players, uh, be sure to let me know. There are lots of ways you can get a hold of me. You can find all that on the website at starwalkerstudios.com. I want to give a shout out to Obsidian Oblivion for your fantastic review on iTunes. Obsidian Oblivion says, after a 20-year hiatus on gaming, I started back about nine months ago and am loving it again. I found Lex's podcast by accident a couple of months ago, and it was sweet serendipity. That's great to hear. Not only have I been drawn into the world-building episodes, but I've been inspired to start creating my own world for a campaign in the near future. That is so awesome, Obsidian Oblivion. I'm glad that uh, you caught the world-building bug. Obsidian Oblivion goes on to say, Lex brings great perspective and intelligent experience views on all things RPG from both sides of the table. You can tell he's passionate about gaming and it shows in his energy and his varied content. If you like well thought out RPG podcasts with good editing and stellar sound quality, thank you. Look no further. Lex is on point. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Obsidian Oblivion. I really appreciate that. I really appreciate anybody who gives me a review on iTunes especially if it's a five-star review, helps people find the show. And it's always good to have new listeners and new people in the community and, and new GMs to put all our heads together and become the best GMs we can be. So I hope that you'll go check out my website. You can find the page for this show at starwalkerstudios.com slash Journey. You can find all my contact information there, Twitter, Google+, Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, all that good stuff. You can also find how to join the Game Master's Journey community, find my voicemail number, all kinds of great ways you can get a hold of me and get in touch with other listeners of the show and compare notes and ideas with other listener GMs. And finally, on the website, starwalkerstudios.com, you can learn about how you can support the show by becoming a patron or making a one-time donation, or by using my Amazon referral link when you shop on Amazon. You can find all this and more at starwalkerstudios.com. So I hope that you have a chance to play your favorite RPG this week. I'll be back soon with another episode of Game Master's Journey. Until then, game on. This has been a Starwalker Studios production, your source for quality gaming and hobby podcasts. This episode's music, courtesy of Cloudwalker, Transboy, Renfield, Stanko, and Ish. See the show notes for more details at starwalkerstudios.com slash Game Master's Journey.